everyone. Welcome to Midcast. I'm your host, Manar Adli. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, one of Iran's most senior nuclear scientists, was assassinated in his car last week on the outskirts of Tehran. State sources in the Islamic Republic are claiming he was killed with a remote-controlled machine gun. While no party has taken responsibility, the Iranian government has already pointed the finger at a number of suspects, chiefly Israel, the United States, and the People's Mujahideen of Iran, commonly known as the MEK, which is a Washington-funded organization with the goal of overthrowing the current Iranian government. But no party has claimed responsibility to the attack thus far. Um, at Fakhrizadi's funeral, though, Defense Minister Amir Hatami vowed that no crime as great as this would go unpunished and that the killing would, would not hinder Iran's nuclear energy program. Both the United States and Israel have a history of interfering in Iranian affairs. Ten months ago, Donald Trump personally gave the order to assassinate Qasem Soleimani, an Iranian military leader and statesman, while Soleimani was in Iraq for regional peace talks. He has also increased and expanded existing sanctions against the Islamic Republic during his reign in the U.S. Uh, White House. Now, Trump has also pulled the United States out of Obama's nuclear deal with Iran. And with only weeks until Joe Biden is set to take up office in the White House, analysts are predicting that this assassination puts the nail in the coffin for any hopes of a worthwhile agreement between the two nations. Now, Fakhrizadeh's death may have shocked Iranians, but it is unlikely to have surprised them, as his killing is the latest in a long line of political assassinations of high-ranking atomic scientists, at least five of whom have been murdered in, pre in the previous 10 years. Some of them, like Mas'ud Ali Muhammadi and Majid Shahriyar, both killed in separate car bombings in 2010 for Fakhrizadeh's peers and co-workers. Now joining me today to discuss the assassination, its geopolitical context and consequences and what it means going forward for the US and Iran is Dr. Sayyid Mohammad Marandi, an Iranian-American academic and political analyst. Now Sayyid, professor of, Sayyid is a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran and is a frequent guest on a wide range of news and political channels. Sayed, thank you so much for joining me on Meetcast. Thank you for having me. Um, now, Dr. Marandi, you're currently in Iran. Um, tell me about the reaction uh, from ordinary Iranians about this assassination. I think you put it quite well. People were shocked, but there really wasn't surprise because the United States and the Israelis have been murdering Iranians uh, on a regular basis over the past uh, few decades. And as you rightly pointed out, about 10 years ago, four Iranian scientists were murdered in separate attacks. Uh, one of them was my colleague at the University of Tehran, Dr. Ali Mohammadi, and um, I had met him, although our fields of uh, uh, at the university are very different. I mean, the humanities, but, uh, but still it, it is, it isn't, you know, uh, it, it's, it's not a, a very large place. We do meet one another now and then. So, um, then, uh, we had, uh, and these, these, those four scientists were murdered during the Obama years. So it's not as if it's only Trump that supports such outrageous, atrocities. Trump brags about these things, but uh, Obama carries carried them out with more 
you know, in a more subtle way without making a big fuss about it. Um, actually, there are many striking similarities between Trump and Obama in that respect. The maximum pressure campaign that Trump has imposed on Iran, where he's trying to make ordinary Iranians suffer as much as possible, he calls them brutal sanctions. Obama called his sanctions, which were the same almost, uh, the, Obama was the first person to target Iranian banks and try to block Iranian trade with other countries and threatened other countries with working uh, from working with Iran. And, but, and Obama called them crippling sanctions. So the name was different, but the objective was the same. And of course, while Trump murdered General Soleimani, who was the most important person in the fight against ISIS, along with his Iraqi counterpart, Abu Mahdi al-Pohandis. Obama helped create the dirty war in Syria, along with the Turkish government, the Saudis, and oil-rich Arab regimes in the Persian Gulf, and of course the Israelis who allowed ISIS and al-Qaeda to have bases alongside their borders. So there isn't much of a difference between Obama and Trump in that respect, and uh, therefore, we don't expect much from Biden. We don't expect him to be some uh, drastically different president. And he himself, as you know, has said that when he, if he becomes president, nothing fundamentally will change. So you recently described um, this assassination as an act of war. I mean, can you expand on that for us? And do you think that the Iranian government also considers this an act of war? And will they respond? Yes, I think it is definitely an act of war. He was actually the deputy defense minister, and he was in charge of research and innovation. So, for example, one of his duties was to help develop a one of the five COVID-19 vaccines that they're developing inside Iran. The Ministry of Defense in Iran, because of the sanctions, does a lot of projects because the private sector is too fearful of being involved, they're afraid, afraid of being sanctioned. And of course, there is very little foreign investment. So the military gets involved in a, a host of different projects, whether it's in the nuclear program or the auto industry or developing vaccines or the high-tech industry, they are active across the board. So he was involved in these different areas. He was a senior government uh, official, he was a public servant, and a high-ranking member of the military. So it is obviously an act of war. Uh, in addition to that, it, uh, you know, Trump retweeted it, uh, the news. It was obvious that he was saying that he approved and that the U.S. had given a green light. And the New York Times also uh, gave a report where three senior American officials explained what had happened. It was obvious that there was a direct link. And since this had happened before on four different occasions during the Obama years, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's easy to make the connection between the United States, between Israel, and of course the MEK terrorist organization. I should add that the MEK terrorist organization is a cult. It fought alongside, it fought for Saddam Hussein during the uh, war between Saddam Hussein and Iran when Saddam invaded Iran. And um, they had um, assassinated and murdered seven, roughly 17,000 Iranians, if I'm not mistaken, through 
bomb attacks and um, and uh, other forms of uh, you know death squads and assassinations. And then after the Americans invaded Iraq, they went under the American umbrella, and they have offices across Europe and North America. They have a base in Albania. So this is one of those really brutal terrorist organizations which Iranians despise. Yet uh, Europeans and Americans have been supporting them for a very, very long time. So this connection, this triangle between the United States, intelligence, Israeli, the Israelis, and the MEK has existed for a long time. And this is an act of war, and uh, the connections, I think, are already pretty clear. And Iranian intelligence has said that uh, they have reason, strong reason to believe that the Israeli regime was involved. Apparently, the weapon that was used was made in Israel. And I'm glad you mentioned, um, you know, you, you gave a pretty good thorough background about some of the players that could be behind this, most likely behind this. Um, but something that really caught my attention is that you described Fakhrizadeh's character and some of the things that he was doing. You know, the mainstream media here in America are going, uh, you know, a little berserk in their description of Fakhrizadeh and kind of painting him as this, you know, kind of crazy scientist out to, um, you know, bomb the world and destroy Israel and destroy America, <laughs> you know. And then on top of that, um, you know, our corporate mainstream media has also... Um, you know, been really pushing this narrative that Iran has this nuclear weapons program. Iran right. has this nuclear weapons program. So talk to me about that and um, <laughs> and the reality and the truth behind Fakhrizadeh, his background, and Iran's nuclear uh, program that's actually being used for energy. Well, there's a good book that your viewers and listeners could read, Manufactured Crisis by Gareth Porter which talks about the history of the Iranian nuclear program. And he, sh and he explains explicitly that Iran never actively pursued a nuclear weapon. And I would argue that if Iran was truly pursuing a nuclear weapon, it would have had it a very long time ago. Because Iran is the most highly developed country in this part of the world. And we see from Iran's conventional weapon capabilities, which are indigenous, Iran's missile capabilities, its drone capabilities, that Iran is far ahead of its regional rivals. So for Iran, if, if, it, if it wanted to develop a nuclear weapon, it would have done so. But it never actually did that. But, and, but the Americans are using it because it's a good excuse to hammer Iran. But it's not the only excuse. They use human rights. Human rights, of course, is not an issue in Palestine, where you have an apartheid state. It's not an issue in Saudi Arabia, or in Egypt, or in Turkey, or in, or in now the United States and Europe, <laughs> as things are are playing out. But when it, when it comes to Iran, it's human rights, it's nuclear weapons. And one thing that I should point out is not only is there no evidence that Iran ever pursued a nuclear weapon, but right now, with the, after the nuclear deal, the IAEA has had uh, very extensive uh, capabilities to observe Iran's nuclear program. So at least now, it's clear that there's no nuclear weapons program. But the reason why the Western media and the American media in particular keep saying this is that they want to justify the Israeli regime, no matter what happens. Even if it's done under Trump, the Israeli regime will always be justified. If it bombs Syria, it's justified. If it bombs Lebanon, it's justified. If it subjugates Palestinians, kills Palestinians, it's justified. It doesn't matter what it does. It's going to be justified. 
So this assassination, it was an act of terror. It was illegal. It was an outrage. But they want to lessen the impact of this by making some sort of justification that, you know, he deserved to be killed, just as they did with General Soleimani. The Americans, they were under Obama, they were deeply involved in creating the, the menace called ISIS. They helped Al-Qaeda through Turkey, through Saudi Arabia. We know from the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency document of 2012 that the United States knew its regional allies were trying to create a Salafist entity between Syria and Iraq. And then the head of that agency, General Michael Flynn, uh, that, the head of that organization, admitted on an Al Jazeera interview of, in an Al Jazeera interview of all places that the United States took a willful decision to help its allies do this. We know from WikiLeaks that Al-Qaeda was on, the Americans knew from early 2012 that Al-Qaeda was on their side. I mean, the, the, the Clinton's emails, Hillary Clinton's emails, there's so much evidence out there. So the, uh, the Americans were deeply involved in creating this menace of Al-Qaeda. General Soleimani was the person leading the fight against Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But um, when the Americans murdered him, the media, while they criticized Trump, but they still tried to justify it. He deserved to die. He was a terrorist. He was evil. So that's, you know, that's how the American media works when it comes to Israel, when it comes to Iran. But there's one very interesting footnote in, uh, of history that I think your listeners and viewers should know. Some of them may know about it because I know your, uh, your viewers and lis listeners are usually more knowledgeable than, than most. And that is that during the Iraq-Iran war, when Saddam Hussein was using chemical weapons, weapons that the Europeans and the Americans helped him obtain, and they helped him use those weapons through giving him military intelligence, especially the Americans. They were the ones who gave the military intelligence. And they gave him political cover at the UN Security Council. So when Saddam, Saddam Hussein, with the help of the West, was using chemical weapons extensively and repeatedly without getting into any trouble at all and killing many thousands of Iranians and many thousands of innocent Iraqis and, and Kurds. Ayatollah Khomeini said that the Iranians will, cannot, will not be allowed to produce weapons of mass destruction. He forbade the military in Iran from moving to produce chemical weapons. It was banned. He, he gave a religious decree saying that weapons of mass destruction are immoral and illegitimate. So while we were being killed with chemical weapons, Iran was not even pursuing the production of chemical weapons to counter what Saddam Hussein was doing. So, you know, the, the way Iran is depicted in the West is very different from the reality as seen from Tehran. Absolutely. And that's, you know, part of the maximum pressure campaign is a uh, maximum dehumanization campaign where Iranians are absolutely depicted in this in this subhuman, um, you know, caricature that justifies these sanctions, these crippling sanctions um, and and so forth. I want you to talk to me a little bit about um, you mentioned that Fakhrizadeh, um, the nuclear scientist that was assassinated, was actually working on a covid vaccine. You mentioned that briefly. Talk to me about some of the developments that Iran 
um, has pursued has been tr- attempting to pursue um, amid these sanctions. Well, one of the interesting things about the whole COVID issue, the whole pandemic, is that when and this is not a direct response to your question, but it's somewhat linked. When the virus first was was first discovered in Iran, the West, a lot of people in the West were gloating, and the Western media was gloating, and the Persian language media that is funded by the West, BBC Persian, VOA Persian, Deutsche Welle Persian, a host of Persian language TV channels that are directed towards Iran and are very hostile towards Iran, day and night were trying to demoralize people and say that, you know, how horrible things are in Iran and so on. So on the one hand, there was a big psychological campaign being carried out against Iranians. But on the other hand, the Americans were actively preventing Iran from importing masks, from importing test kits, from importing ventilators. And Iran was having serious trouble getting this stuff. And a senior American uh, think tanker, uh, I'm not sure we, who he, which one he is, so I'm not going to mention his name, although I'm pretty sure. He said that gloatingly in a tweet that what COVID did to Iran, the sanctions couldn't do. In other words, the COVID was more effective than the maximum pressure campaign. And this is how you know disgusting and despicable these people are. And it is as because of what you said, this dehumanization of Iranians, the dehumanization of Syrians, of Palestinians, of the people in Yemen and Libya, where everything can be justified. All atrocities make sense because they are less human. They are a threat to humanity. You know, they're they're uh, they're immature. They're you know. So, and we're talking about a country of Iran that's nearly 90 million people. I mean, it's a that's big, right. that it's that's a, right. it's a, it's a, I mean, these are 90 million human beings that we're referring to. That's right. And, and the people of Yemen, Iran, Syria, Iraq, Palestine, these are ancient civilizations that go way before that were created far before anything that we've ever seen, anything that ever existed in Europe. But uh, but that's 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 how that's how you know narratives and discourse works and work in today's world. So Iran, the Ministry of Defense, uh, as well as other parts of the state, began to make their own ventilators. They began to the sort of the same problem that you had in the United States. They had here, you know, with ventilators and test kits and 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 all that. The very same issues existed here. So, but the Iranians quickly developed them with the help of the Ministry of Defense. And one of the things that they've been doing also is developing a vaccine. They're also, of course, the Ministry of Defense, if I'm not mistaken, is developing one vaccine. But there are also other vaccines that are being developed by other bodies as well. So the point is that um, he is depicted as some sort of monster, who a mad scientist, as I think you said, who's out to destroy the world. But in reality, he's a civil, he was a civil servant, a public servant who was helping to prevent people from dying, whereas the Americans were trying to make people die. And by the way, and I know you know this quite well, and, and it's, I'm just saying it for the sake of those who maybe not know this uh, among your audience, and that is that 
Iran has never said that it wants to militarily destroy Israel. It, this whole notion about committing genocide or killing Jews, that's, that's all nonsense. That's, a, again, another fabrication to justify Israeli actions. Iran's position has always been that Israel is an apartheid state. It's a colony, it's a colony like apartheid South Africa, and that it is immoral and morally illegitimate. And that as long as it continues to be an apartheid state, it has no moral legitimacy, like apartheid South Africa. So Iran's policy towards Israel is identical to its policy towards apartheid South Africa. And back then, when Iran supported the ANC and other groups and Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela was a terrorist, according to U.S. law. The ANC, the African National Congress, was a terrorist organization, according to U.S. law. In fact, Nelson Mandela, when he was freed from prison, became president, retired after serving his term as president. He was still a terrorist, according to U.S. law. He was only removed from the, the, the list in 2008. So when Iran was supporting the people of South Africa, the Americans, the Europeans were supporting the, the supremacists, and the, the situation in Palestine is identical to what we saw in South Africa decades ago. And Israel right now is basically going one country at a time, creating these, uh, you know, these peace ties, um, these trade deals, normalization, if you will, uh, with countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, Sudan, uh, and they're trying to do that with Oman and other and other countries in Africa and across the Middle East. Um, and many are saying that this plan to create these uh, trade deals and peace deals and normalization is really to set up the stage for a larger war against Iran. What is your take on this? Well, first of all, I think that these peace deals and these open relationships and the fact that these regimes are their leaders are coming out of the closet they they this doesn't bode well for these regimes and personally i think that they're probably doing this under duress netanyahu wants this to happen so trump wants it to happen so they're forced to make it happen all these regimes had good relations with Israelis for a very long time. You know this better than I. But they were smart and they tried to keep it, you know, under the table. Why? Because in this part of the world and much of the global south, Israel is despised and no one is going to become more legitimate in the eyes of the public by having a relationship with Israel. So the closer these regimes get to Israel, the more vulnerable they are uh, with regards to the, the, the notion of legitimacy. So I personally don't think it's in their interest. I think it's mostly in the interest of Netanyahu. I don't even think it's in the interest of Israel because it's in the intra interest of Israel to have a strong and stable Saudi Arabia dictatorship, a strong and stable Emirati dictatorship. But when these regimes become more openly uh, friendly to, to the Israeli regime, that doesn't help them, and it doesn't help them outside of their countries either. Their image becomes increasingly tarnished. No, I mean, one of the interesting things is that the, Tur the Turkish government is constantly outraged when these countries 
uh, declare their relationship. But, Tur but Turkey has an embassy, they have an ambassador, they have direct flights, they have tourists from Israel, and they have extensive trade. So that is one of the ironies of this whole situation. But, but regardless of the hypocrisy of the Turkish government, the Turkish government is constantly hammering the Saudis and the Emiratis for doing what they've already done uh, and for doing what they are preserving, in meaning establishing open ties with the Israelis. So this, this propaganda, whether it comes from Turkey or from Palestinians or from people on the streets or from Iran or anywhere, it doesn't help these regimes. So I don't think any coalition is going to be built that could be a threat to Iran. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, what keeps these regimes intact is the United States. It's not Israel. The U.S. is all over the place. The Israelis can't do anything that the Americans haven't already done. The Israelis themselves are not a strong regime. Their strength lies in the fact that the Americans are uh, supporting them to the hilt and, and, and the Europeans are supporting them, you know, completely. If it wasn't for their support, the Israelis, I mean, it's a small country with a small population. Half the population is Palestinians who are, of course, subjugated or second-class citizens if they are citizens. That's actually a really good point. Um, none of these regimes and these dictatorships would even uh, be possible without the uh, funding and arming uh, by the United States, which is the you know largest U.S. empire empire history has ever seen, um, which takes me to uh, U.S. relations with Iran moving forward. You know, you know, you, you made a very good point that, you know, while Trump on the outside has been more vicious and atrocious in his attacks against Iran, Obama was not much easier on Iran. Under Obama, you know, there were still sanctions against Iran. Um, and then there was a lot of provocations uh, against Iran, whether it was in Yemen or Bahrain or in Iraq or in Syria, for example. Uh, this was all to isolate Iran. So we know those things. And now, you know, in America, people are so excited for Joe Biden. <laughs> They're so excited for normalcy and decency to, to enter the White House. At least that's how the mainstream media has, has presented it as. Um, but Joe Biden has already surrounded himself by, uh, you know, Bush era, Obama era, Clinton era, uh, war hawks who are basically responsible for reviving the Cold War, who are responsible for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and then the wars and, you know, for destabilizing Libya, where like open slavery is like taking place, where Syria has, you know, was plunged into a civil war. You know, you know, we all know these things. And so where do we take it from here? Where do you see um, U.S. relations with the United States um, headed towards, especially with Joe Biden's cabinet picks, who are, I think, even more dangerous than, than I would say Trump's picks? Well, you know, it's not all that different from what's actually going on inside the United States. I mean, for example, the cages that you know, where children were put in, they were built during the Obama years rather than the Trump years, but that's erased from the public sphere. Or uh, the young lady decades ago who was sexually harassed by Biden, you know, quietly erased and forgotten or the New Yorker article about Biden's son, you know, behaving exactly like a Trump family member would behave, but, you know, big tech and 
all of them block them from being from from the, the article from being seen. Uh, so it's there's no real you know difference between uh, what's going on out or U.S. policy outside uh, foreign policy and internal policy. It is going to be business as usual, but it's going to be a big mess. The, the, you know, the situation in the United States is very different from what it was 30, 40 years ago. The middle class has collapsed. The country is uh, uh, very different from the America that I knew when I was a child. And U.S. foreign policy, I think, is the same. They are going to, you know, they, there's, there's a strong element of continuity in U.S. foreign policy, whether it's Biden or Trump or Obama. But Obama is much more sophisticated than Trump, and the people around Biden are, despite the fact that Biden has difficulty expressing himself, but the people around Biden are that type of people. They're more sophisticated. But the policies are not going to be all that different. We, we, I have no expectations, and I don't think anyone in Iran has any great expectations. But I think it's going to be much more difficult than before for the United States to maintain its empire because of a host of reasons, the, the coming economic crisis at home, the economic depression, uh, if there's not a, you know, the, the, if there's no bailout coming forth, I think it's going, people in the United States are going to be hit pretty hard, very hard pretty soon. And even if there is a bailout, there's, they're still going to be hit very hard in the months ahead. You have, uh, the, divide in the United States, this is going to have an impact on the way in which the American government uh, exerts power across the globe. It's going to make it more difficult for the Americans to exercise hegemony and to maintain its hold over the rest of the world. And U.S. allies in this region are much weaker than they were before. The Saudis have spent much of their reserves in this dirty war in Yemen. And uh, the uh, you know, the, the, the regimes across this region that are closely bound to the United States are effectively, their economies are on lockdown. I mean, the price of oil has gone down. They're completely dependent on oil. Turkey, which ha is very dependent on tourism, air travel, you know, the, uh, the, the country is, is facing a major economic problem and the Turks have been sending extremists to Libya, to Syria, to Iraq, and everywhere. It's, it, you know, this sort of, President Erdogan is sort of mimicking Trump in a way, and, but this is an expensive endeavor. So many of the U.S. allies are weakened, the United States is weakened, and their allies are at each other's throats now. Before they were together, working together, the Saudis and the Turks, now they're at loggerheads and with the Israelis now. You know, you have these differences. So it's going to be much more difficult for the Americans to exert power. And it's also going to be uh, more difficult for the Americans to put the burden on the shoulders of allies because those allies are themselves heavily burdened with problems as a result of the COVID virus and as a result of the global economic situation. Of course, I don't want to make it you know, you know, I don't want to say that Turkey is identical with Saudi Arabia. It's not. Turkey, you know, the, the, the culture in Turkey is actually very similar to Iran. Many Iranians who travel to Turkey or my Turkish friends who travel to Iran 
they feel very comfortable. And there's no, before COVID, of course, there's no, you don't need a visa to travel back and forth. But unfortunately, uh, since 2010, uh, President Erdogan has been increasingly moving closer to extremist Wahhabi groups, the Al-Qaeda type, the ISIS type. And there, there is a big, this has become a big problem in Turkey. Just today, I've been speak, I was speaking to one of my Turkish colleagues, and he says that Turkish intelligence have a big problem in Istanbul and in other major cities because you have all these extremists spread out all over the place. Ironic, because they're the ones who have been uh, helping them expand and grow. Um, you know, my, fi- my final question to you is, you know, there's a lot of uh, resistance to U.S. empire and hegemony and the military-industrial complex. You know, the world is changing, as you mentioned. Uh, U.S. allies are weakening. And um, U.S. foes, countries that resist uh, U.S. hegemony, like China and Russia and Iran and perhaps Venezuela, they're actually becoming stronger. Um, how do you see these, you know, um, access of foes, I don't know what you would call them, <laughs> access of evil countries across the world, how do you see them working together more to resist U.S. empire in terms of like organizations like BRICS or alternative currencies? Like how do you see the world moving forward past U.S. hegemony? And how is Iran involved in that? Well, I think a lot of this is the doing of the United States government itself. By antagonizing Russia, they push Russia closer to Iran and China. By antagonizing China, they push China closer to Iran and Russia. By antagonizing Iran, they push Iran closer closer to China and Russia. So when the Democrats, when Clinton loses the election, instead of facing reality, they create this, you know, they create this fantastic story about the Russians somehow bringing Trump to power, and the Democrats destroy the relationship with Russia. Okay, then Trump goes and destroys the relationship with China. And both Democrats and Republicans have destroyed the relationship with Iran. So they brought these three countries closer to each other. And then you have a host of other countries like Venezuela uh, that um, and Bolivia, which uh, despite the, the coup that was backed by Human Rights Watch and all you know the the Western media, but the people who were able to uh, take power away from the the coup leaders. Uh, so you have Cuba, Venezuela, and you have changes taking place in Argentina. And as you were pointing, as I was also saying earlier, in the, in our region, U.S. allies are weakening. So you have a, a growing uh, front that they may not be ideologically united because. China is, of course, communist with one type of culture, Russia, Iran, Venezuela, each have their own backgrounds, but they have striking similarities. In fact, the Iranians, as you know quite well, helped Venezuela when no one else would by sending fuel to the country when they desperately needed it. So this cooperation is growing at a time when the United States is on the decline. And ironically, those countries like Iran and Venezuela that were sanctioned the most, despite being hurt by the coronavirus, but they were hurt much less than other countries because they were forced to become more dependent on local uh, capabilities, local industries. They were forced to become more self-sufficient. So they weren't as vulnerable to the 
global economic uh, downturn that was brought about as, as a result of the current circumstances, both the, the COVID virus as well as the, the legacy of the 2008 economic crisis has only become worse because of the uh, foolish economic policies that have been pursued since then. So I personally believe that things are going to become more difficult for the United States, especially because Biden has not learned any lessons and uh, the people who are going to come back to power think that this is going to be 2008 all over again. The world has moved on. The United States is the, the government, the, the state is much weaker than it was before. Uh, but that could also be very dangerous because declining powers usually behave dangerously. And so uh, we have to see what happens. Yeah, they can kind of become a little erratic and more <laughs> more violent. Right. Actually, we're actually we're seeing that right now with Saudi Arabia. You know that that country is in decline, like you mentioned, and they kind of went full force into the war in Yemen, even though they're uh, very much losing the war. Um, That's right. That's in right. Yemen. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Saeed Mohammed Morandi. You are an Iranian-American academic and political analyst. Thank you so much for joining us today, and hopefully we'll have you on again soon. Thank you very much for having, having me, and I hope to see you soon.